quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trump says that the man he once nicknamed Sloppy Steve can testify. The lead starts right now. The January 6th committee is back in action and planning to lay out the role violent extremist groups such as the Oath Keepers had in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection, including a death list and potential connections to top Trump allies. But how incriminating are those connections? Then, new testimony from the Uvalde, Texas sheriff about the bungled law enforcement response to the school shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers at the end of May. And new details about what the 77 minutes of school hallway surveillance video shows. Plus, a new COVID variant spreading at an alarming rate throughout the United States. And this one is not deterred, even by recent infections. So how do the vaccines hold up against it? Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and members of the January 6th Select House Committee now publicly suggesting they will use tomorrow's hearing to draw direct links between the extremist groups who stormed the U.S. Capitol and have been charged with seditious conspiracy and people inside Donald Trump's orbit. We are going to be connecting the dots uh, during these hearings between uh, these groups and uh, those who were trying to, in, in uh, government circles to overturn uh, the election. Well, we heard uh, Cassidy Hutchinson testify uh, along the lines of Trump telling Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, to talk to Roger Stone and others, Mike Flynn, and Stone and Flynn had relationships with some of these far-right militia groups. Are those the dots you're talking about connecting? Uh, some of them. Some of them. The committee was also thrown another curveball yesterday as Trump ally Steve Bannon reversed course. He now claims he is willing to testify before the panel. Bannon had previously defied a subpoena from the committee and is set to go on trial for criminal contempt of Congress. But Bannon's lawyer now claims that his client wants to testify live and at a public hearing. It's a suggestion that members of the committee have already dismissed. CNN's Ryan Noble starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with all of these new developments, including the surprising revelation that Donald Trump's attorney was interviewed by the FBI. The Justice Department says they were among the rioters causing the most trouble on January 6th. Right-wing extremist groups, many of whom allegedly came to Washington intent on disrupting Congress's certification of the 2020 election, will now be the focus of tomorrow's House Select Committee hearing. Just to give a historical precedence to this group. The committee is prepared to outline the role groups like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and Three Percenters played on January 6th. They will grill a former Oath Keeper spokesperson, Jason Van Tottenhove. All I'm doing is giving a historical precedence. That's all I'm able to talk on because that's the, the, the extent of my knowledge base. This after prosecutors revealed new details of how the Oath Keepers allegedly prepared for violence. At least one member bringing explosives, including military ordnance grenades, to the D.C. area. 
But the committee believes these groups weren't operating in a vacuum and has been looking into whether their connections go all the way to the Trump White House. We obviously want to probe any connection between these uh, dangerous groups and the White House. Uh, I think we've gotten some answers, but there's still a great deal we don't know uh, that we're endeavoring to find out. Tuesday's hearing comes as Steve Bannon has a change of heart about cooperating with the committee. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Bannon, staring down a criminal contempt trial, now tells the committee he's willing to talk, but only if he can do it in public on his own terms. Prosecutors have called this move a stunt to try and wiggle out of his criminal contempt charges. The Department of Justice also revealing that they've interviewed former Trump lawyer Justin Clark. Clark told DOJ Trump never told Bannon he would not waive executive privilege in order for him to speak to the committee. This despite a letter from Trump to Bannon this weekend saying he now waives privilege claims. The committee is willing to hear from Bannon, but on their ground rules. We do um, depositions. Uh, you know, this goes on for hour after hour after hour. We want to get all our questions answered, and you can't do that in a live format. And the committee is not releasing their witness list ahead of tomorrow's hearing. They said today it is because of security concerns. So we won't know the full list of participants until the hearing itself starts. And Jake, you were pressing Zolofgren about those potential ties to the White House. You specifically mentioned Roger Stone and Michael Flynn as two people the committee will be looking for. Committee aides telling us today they will indeed show Roger Stone and Michael Flynn having direct ties to these extremist groups during their hearing tomorrow. Jake. All right. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss documentary filmmaker Alex Holder. He had behind the scenes access to the Trump White House and the Trump family for his docuseries, Unprecedented, which is now streaming on Discovery Plus, which is, of course, CNN's sister company. Alex, thanks so much for being here. So now that we've seen all three parts of the documentary, I have to ask, is there footage that did not air that could be relevant to criminal investigations, do you think? Probably, yes. Can you give us an idea of what that might be? I, I come to that conclusion mainly because of the fact that the sort of grand jury investigation has subpoenaed the material. So I imagine that they have sort of an idea that there could be something in there. And I think that there are various bits of, of information that didn't make it into the film for various reasons. And that could be of uh, interest to, uh, to the Georgia um, sort of gra ground uh, jury prosecutor. All right. Interesting. Committee members say tomorrow's hearing is going to focus on uh, how the violent mob came together, including these far right militia groups, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, and what they say are connections between those groups uh, and members of Trump or Trump's orbit. Did you see any of these possible connections or conversations during your work between these far-right militia groups and any member of Trump's orbit? No, I didn't. I you didn't at all? Okay. Since your testimony, has the committee reached out to you again or any of your crew members? No, they've been in touch for various matters over the course of the time since I testified in front of them, yes. Can you tell us what about? I, they wanted a bit more information about various uh, pieces of, of, of material that we had given to them as part of this, the original subpoena. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it was sort of trying to work out the chronology of events that were taking place and to also understand various technical things as well. But, I mean, pretty standard stuff. Um, CNN has obtained two clips that were not featured in the documentary but have been shared with the January 6th committee. I want to play part of that. This is Donald Trump talking about trying to overturn the results uh, in Georgia in an interview that you conducted with him on December 7th, 2020. Let's roll that. They should open it up, verify the signatures. When you do, you'll see that all of those people that signed didn't have the right to vote. 
they were forgeries and other things. And all we want is that, and that's simple, or a special session. Let their legislature uh, make the decision because they're already largely on our side because they see what happened in Georgia. Now, to be clear, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, confirmed that Joe Biden was the winner. This is after three counts of the ballots. Your lawyer previously confirmed that you were cooperating with the Fulton County uh, Georgia District Attorney's investigation, which you just mentioned. Uh, is this part of what they want to know about? Yes. What specifically? Just about Trump trying to reach out and look at the signatures? Or, or is there even more? I mean, we, we know that he was telling Raffensperger and others to find votes. Yes. And that actually took place a month after, almost to a day, a month after that interview. And that interview took place sort of four days or so after his attorney general had said that there was no evidence whatsoever to support Trump's claims. So here is the sitting president of the United States already about a month after the election in the White House, in the diplomatic reception room, saying what he thinks needs to happen in order to achieve the result that he is trying to, to get to. Um, did, do you have evidence that he knew it was a lie? I mean, this is, this is a question that's come up a lot. And I think that you know, Donald Trump had been talking about the sanctity of the election in the United States of America back in 2016. And I have no doubt back then that he absolutely knew what he was doing and that he knew he was lying. My interaction with him was a man who was, to quote the Attorney General, detached from reality. This was somebody who actually believed in his own lie. And the idea of that, that, that surprised me. Because the idea that the President of the United States of America could actually believe in something so irrational and still be the President is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, he's believed a lot of irrational things before this one, but this is the first time it's led to violence. Absolutely. And also, it's the first time I've ever experienced it as well. Sure. And, and I think also in the context, I mean, the portrait of George Washington was on the wall looking down at him whilst we're conducting this interview. And it was extraordinary. Um, are you participating in any other investigations into any other members of the Trump family, uh, other that, you, that we have the, the, obviously the hearing and the committee, and then we have the d- district attorney in Fulton County? We'd, there might be other investigations I don't even know about at the Justice Department or elsewhere. So far, there's just two subpoenas. Just two, okay. Another one of the unaired clips that we obtained features Eric Trump, uh, the president's uh, second son, on the phone talking about his father's chances in Florida. Let's listen. Hey, Lisa, you're in a good state that has a good governor and has a great lieutenant governor, and we love her, and, uh, and uh, you've got a great attorney general, and there's going to be no games in your state, which is nice. It's very different than... Uh, and some of them out there, so um, now you're, you're very fortunate. What was the context around that phone call? So we had access to a private event. It was a sort of fundraising event in the Trump uh, Hotel that took place about a month or so before the election. As we were filming inside there, Eric had actually allowed us in, and so we were filming sort of what was going on. The Trump family were trying to raise money. It seemed that they were running out of cash, so they were sort of you know, making phone calls to potential donors and trying to raise money. Bit of a tense situation during that, that day. You've said that one of your takeaways from time spent with the former president is you think he doesn't really understand what democracy means. Uh, what has he said to you that led you to draw that conclusion other than what we've witnessed for the last year and a half? I mean, indeed. I mean, so when people hopefully watch the series, they'll see the types of things that, that the president at the time was trying to achieve. And you know, I mean, he was saying things like that we need to find brave judges. And you know, undermining sort of the, the judicial system undermining the sanctity of, of the vote is obviously incredibly serious. And I don't think that leads to somebody who fully understands and appreciates 
what democracy is, which ultimately is to accept the result of the election. Um, okay, and then, and then finally I want to ask you, because the docuseries leans into the idea that one of Trump's three oldest kids, uh, Don Jr., Ivanka, or Eric, is going to take the reins uh, from their father. After spending so much time with the family, do you think uh, any of them are up for it? I mean, I don't want to ruin the series for everybody. So, and I hope people come to their own conclusions. I mean, the film has its own suggestion as to who could potentially take over from Donald Trump. But, uh, I mean, they all have their own sort of uh, eccentricities, let's say. And they all have, share different personalities with each other and also with their, with their father as well. But I'll leave it to the audience to decide who is the potential successor of Donald Trump. All right, interesting stuff. Uh, Alex Holder, thank you so much. And you can watch Unprecedented, which is streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. Again, that's our sister channel. Coming up next, how the January 6th hearings are playing out among voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin. The answers may surprise you. Plus, President Biden calling for a ban on semi-automatic rifles during an event in the White House Rose Garden today. We're going to talk to one city's mayor who was at the event, asking him about what he thinks President Biden needs to do to curb gun violence in his city. Stay with us. We are less than 24 hours away from the seventh hearing of the year for the January 6th Select House Committee, but with so many other issues affecting Americans, from record high prices to gun violence to abortion rights, how much attention are voters paying to what's happening on Capitol Hill? CNN's Miguel Marquez traveled to Green Bay, Wisconsin, to try to find out. Summer in Green Bay. The committee will be in order. Washington, D.C., in the congressional hearings investigating the January 6th insurrection, feel a million miles away. They stormed the, the Capitol. That's what happened. They, they went in, they climbed in through windows, and they rummaged through offices, and they did what they did. I mean, what more do I need to know about the fact that what occurred, occurred? Some Democrats watching closely. Some of the testimony that's come out, it's been a little more in-depth than I, than I had been aware of. But with so many hot-button issues, gun violence, inflation, abortion rights, among others, the January 6th hearings, even for those concerned. Where does January 6th and those hearings fit on the priority list for you? On the bottom rung to me. Just getting a little bit lost in the shuffle. Don Coors is a Republican who voted for Donald Trump twice and would vote for him again. I I think it's more of a distraction. Um, what the real reason is, is why these January 6th um, hearings are going on, I think is beyond what we're seeing, superficially. Mark Becker was chair of Green Bay's Brown County Republicans. He left the party in 2015 as Trump rose to power. How important are the January 6th hearings and the investigation that's that's happening? (sighs) I think... Right now, in you know, the way the world is right now, it's, it's not as important as it should be. I think in 10 years, we'll look back at this and say, yeah, that was a big deal. That, that was a really big deal. Um, what, why? And what do you mean? That- it was a coup attempt. And even some progressive Democrats. Abortion bans have got to go! Adriana Pocola says she can do something here and now about abortion rights. But January 6th? We can't do anything about that. But what we can do is something in our community immediately to save lives. Rick Beverstein seems a rarity here. Conservative, 
and paying close attention to the January 6th hearings. Democracy is what is at stake. His take, all our current problems won't be solved if trust in democracy isn't restored. We have huge issues in our, in our country, but we don't have a country if we can't come together. We don't have a country to solve these issues if we can't reconcile who's in charge and how they got there. Miguel Marquez, CNN, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And our thanks to Miguel Marquez for that reporting. A quick programming note, join CNN's Drew Griffin for a new investigation into Steve Bannon and his master plan to reshape the U.S. government and the Republican Party and indeed the United States. The CNN special report, Steve Bannon, Divided We Fall, begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sunday evening. Growing questions about the motive in the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. That's next. Topping our worldly just days after his shocking assassination, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's party sailed to victory in a national election. Though the win was expected, the vote took on greater significance after party leaders denounced the assassination of Abe as an attack on democracy. CNN's Kyung Law reports for us from Japan, a nation still very much in shock, where days of mourning are planned for the popular former leader. At a Buddhist temple in the heart of Tokyo, the body of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe arrived for a two-day funeral ceremony. A line of mourners with flowers pause and pray. A Japanese public to whom gun violence is almost unheard of struggles to comprehend. I'm still so shocked, says Hideki Kakinuma. Why did this happen to Japan? Answering the why begins with alleged assassin Tetsuya Yamagami. Police say the 41-year-old Yamagami planned for weeks ahead of the shooting. Police recovered multiple handmade pistols from Yamagami's home. Crude weapons made from iron pipe and adhesive tape. NHK reports Yamagami told police he built them by watching YouTube videos. Days ahead of the murder, NHK, citing police sources, say Yamagami practiced shooting in the mountains. Officers also recovered wooden boards with bullet holes in the suspect's car. The day before, police say he practiced shooting against a building in Nara. As Abe began his speech on the street, a news camera caught Yamagami standing with the crowd, listening. The next time we see Yamagami, two shots were fired. Officers tackled Yamagami to the ground, armed with his homemade gun. Police say Yamagami held a grudge against a group he believed the former prime minister had ties to. The group has not been named to police by CNN. But Japanese local media report that the suspect told police his mother was involved with the group. But the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, widely known as the Unification Church, held a news conference telling reporters that the church did have a tie to the suspect's mother. She was a member of their church. We struggle to understand why the suspect killed former Prime Minister Abe due to any resentment towards our organization, says the church president. He acknowledged that he was aware that the suspect's mother had financial difficulties around 2002, but he didn't know why or the impact on the family. The church pledged to cooperate with police. Among the mourners gathering in Japan's capital, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We saw in him... Something rare, uh, a man of, of vision who's 
have the ability to realize uh, that vision. A towering political figure globally and at home, a country begins to bid farewell. It is Tuesday morning here in Tokyo, this country just beginning to wake up. The funeral for the former prime minister is going to be held at this temple behind me, Zozoji Temple, in the heart of Tokyo. And it's here that at around, right around lunchtime, that the family and close friends and dignitaries are going to be gathering at the temple. It will be closed to the public, the central part of the funeral, but there will be an area, Jake, just as we saw for the wake, where the public can come to pay their final respects. Jake. Thanks so much. We'll have more on the assassin uh, himself later in the program, Kyung La in Japan. Thank you so much. Uh, turning to Putin's brutal war on Ukraine, at least six people were killed, dozens injured, after Russia bombed the second biggest city in Ukraine, Kharkiv, according to Ukraine's government. Two of the dead were a father and his 17-year-old son, their car taking a direct hit as they were on their way to pick up a university entrance certificate. CNN's uh, Alex Marquardt joins up with a team of pharmacists there, per- preparing to get life-saving medicine to the front line as they dodge rocket attacks in their own city. In a boarded-up pharmacy in Kharkiv, we follow Yulia Klemnyuk down into the basement. They never used this space before the war. Now it holds shelf after shelf of vital, donated medicine while also serving another purpose. As we've been down here, we can hear some heavy shelling uh, from up above. That's not very common at this time of the day in in mid-morning. Thankfully, we're already down in the basement, so we're where we need to be. That shelling killed at least six city residents. Yulia and her team are unfazed, preparing to head out on a monthly visit to multiple frontline villages, which desperately need hard-to-get medicine, medical supplies, and basics like baby formula. The pharmacy comes to the village, she says. Pharmacies are either destroyed or there are no pharmacists, and people need medicine. The lead vehicle in the convoy is an ambulance. When it arrives in the first village, its sirens ring out to tell everyone they're here. Soon, a line has formed in the rain. Old retirees, young parents with their kids, anyone who's left here seems to come out, including a village doctor. We really need medication. We don't have a local pharmacy. We have nowhere to buy anything, she says. Insulin, heart and blood pressure drugs are at the top of her list, along with sedatives and antidepressants. Animals are a priority, too. Another car is full of dog food for beloved pets like Baikal, whose owner, Eager, says Baikal is shell-shocked from all the explosions. This village had been occupied by Russian forces and caught between the warring sides, the scars of the fighting very visible, as is the Russian retreat. When the Russians occupied this village, uh, a man who lives here says uh, that they would tuck their tanks and their armored vehicles between houses and cover them up to try to hide them. But then the Ukrainians retook this village, and you can see they blew up and, and destroyed this armored vehicle. After about an hour, the team packs up and moves on to a poorer rural village just 25 kilometers or 16 miles from the closest Russian position. Here, the residents gather around even faster. The profound need for aid is clear. While we're there, a team from World Central Kitchen arrives to hand out meals. Another eager line forms. 
Many of the Ukrainians we met were forced to live in the basements of their own homes while Russians occupied them, Yulia tells us. They're helpless, held hostage by this situation, she says. We help because they cannot provide for themselves. The team we are with visited three villages today, Jake, and managed to get medicine to some 400 people. They regularly visit more than 100 villages, just to give you a sense of how many people uh, they are helping out. And you could see how grateful those people are. Now, it's not just about pharmacies being destroyed or closed. People have often lost their livelihoods. They can't afford this medicine. They have lost their methods of transportation. Their cars have blown up. Or they are simply too scared, Jake, to go anywhere. Alex Marquardt in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Quote, wrenching. That's how the 77 minutes of surveillance video from the Uvalde school hallway is being described by one of the few journalists who has seen it. Stay with us. In our national lead, demanding answers and some semblance of transparency. The Texas State House Committee Chairman investigating the Uvalde school shooting is calling for the city's district attorney to release the 77-minute video that shows the hallway outside the classroom during the massacre. One reporter for an Austin newspaper who has seen the video telling CNN it is, quote, wrenching and will, quote, deepen the tragedy. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Austin at the Texas State Capitol for us, where the House Committee heard testimony from three witnesses today, including the director of Texas DPS and the Uvalde County Sheriff. Rosa, what do we know about the testimony today, and when can we expect a report from the House Committee that is investigating this shooting? You know, according to a source close to this committee, that report could be released within 10 days. Now, about the testimony and about this report, the Texas House Investigative Committee has heard testimony from about 40 witnesses so far in the past few weeks. They reviewed evidence. And the goal, according to a source close to this investigation, is to be a fact-finding mission. And they're hoping that this report clarifies some of the conflicting reports that we've heard from the beginning of this. There's been many. Now, a key part of achieving that is the release of the hallway video. Now, I want to be very clear here. The parents of the, of the victims, the families of the victims, Texas DPS, Texas lawmakers, the Uvalde uh, city mayor, they've been calling for the release of this video. But the portion of the video that shows the failed law enforcement response, in essence, the hallway video of police waiting, they are not asking for the release of the video that shows any of the violence, any of the uh, massacre or the final moments of these children. Not at all. What they're hoping for is for accountability. Now, Jake, this video has not been released. This has created a lot of outrage in the city of Uvalde by a lot of the family members of the victims uh, because they want accountability. You've got to put yourselves in your shoe, in their shoes. They're seeing some of these police officers in the grocery store at the gas station. And what they're calling for now is all of those officers that were in the hallway, Jake, who did nothing. They're asking for those officers to turn in their badges. They're hoping for accountability here. Jake? No, it's incredible. I mean, who do they think the police officers work for? Who do they think that videotape belongs to? It belongs to the people of that town. The Avaldi District Attorney, Rosa, has said she does not want the 77-minute hallway video released. Why? You know, I've asked that question to her multiple times, and she has not answered. But this is where a lot of 
journalists and the people from this community are scratching their heads because we all know that the shooter is dead. So what criminality is she investigating here? I've asked that specific question and have not gotten an answer. But here's the backstory, Jake. The Texas House Investigative Committee, who's pushing for the release of this video, uh, issued statements saying that they have they're asking for a waiver to their NDA, asking the Texas DPS to release the video. And Texas DPS says that the person who's objecting here is the DA. Yeah. And, and let us remember the very first thing the police and the politicians of Uvalde did was praise their response and how great their behavior was. That's the story they wanted out there. Rosa Flores, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Today, President Biden celebrating the passage of the Safer Communities Act. This legislation was the very first bipartisan gun safety law to pass in decades in the United States. It provides funding for states to implement red flag laws and closes the so-called boyfriend loophole, which bars people convicted of domestic violence from purchasing a gun. Joining us now to discuss is Kansas City, Missouri, Mayor Quinton Lucas. He was at President Biden's celebration today. He's also the chairman of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Criminal and Social Justice Committee. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, uh, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Good to have you. So according to the CDC, these are statistics that I'm sure you're familiar with, Missouri ranks fourth in the country for having the most gun deaths, and most of those gun deaths are in St. Louis and in your city, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Do you think this legislation will help bring that number down? I think it's an important start. It is in no way everything that we need to see happen, but when you have statistics like the fact that the number one cause of death for children is firearms, you recognize we need to do something. This legislation speaks both to red flag laws, closing the boyfriend loophole so we're not ignoring domestic violence tragedies. And more than anything, I think it shows us that we can build on more and better legislation as time goes on. We do not have to live with gun violence just being a part of everyday life, whether you're at a bar, a grocery store, or sadly an elementary school. So today, President Biden at the event, he called for a ban on what are called assault weapons or or semi-automatic rifles. Uh, you, along with 27 other mayors from around the country, you wrote a letter to President Biden last year calling for that ban. Statistics do show that most gun deaths are from handguns, yep. though, not from these long guns. So why a ban on assault weapons and not on handguns? Uh, you know, I think when we look at how we can be practical with it, there are so many handguns in our communities. We do believe that responsible legislation can help. Concealed carry permits being required, which was something Missouri had when I was a kid, but that we've gotten rid of because we want to make sure that everybody can walk around with a gun without any investigation. Those are things you can do with handgun issues. But on assault weapons, there's absolutely no reason. There's not a hunting reason. There is no reason. You need a weapon of war to go about your day. And in states like mine, ones where you don't need a permit, where you're really not going through checks in all purchasing situations, and more than anything, where we're seeing them used in more and more criminal incidents. These are the sorts of things that aren't just harming our school children, folks at parades, but also our police officers on the streets. They say regularly that they are outgunned by these assault weapons, and that's why big city mayors want to see them taken off of our streets. As you also know, uh, two-thirds of gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Uh, which is one of the reasons why these red flag laws and this investment in uh, money for emotional health care might help. Do you think that would help? It will. And this is one of those areas that's not discussed nearly enough. The fact that gun-related suicides not only are significant in states like mine, but they're rising. You are seeing more and more people harm themselves and unfortunately harm others. So it's not a story just of violent crime on our streets, but it's one that's hitting every community, rural and urban, in terms of having too many guns, not having red flag laws, and really not having help for people. 
I think it's easier in my city and in my state to get a gun than it is to get a therapist. That's something that we're trying to see changed, and this investment will make a difference. And for those who wonder what the, you know, why go after guns when it comes to the issue of suicide, it's because people who attempt suicide with guns tend to not survive, whereas people who attempt suicide through other means uh, often survive. Now, that's absolutely right. I mean, my, my nephew's in the Army, and his drill sergeant just took his own life yesterday. This is the sort of thing that impacts our soldiers, our first responders, so many folks. And this is just an important first step, making sure that we have money and investment for mental health, making sure we're getting guns, these means of violence and suicide out of people's hands. I don't I I know you don't need to be told this, but I'm sure you see this all the time in Kansas City, which is there is a horrible crime committed with a gun, a handgun, whatever. And often the person uh, has a record, has a criminal record. And in 2019 report, from the U.S. Sentencing Commission says 68% of gun offenders will be rearrested for a new crime within eight years. Some people say that the real, a real solution should be locking people up if they commit a, a crime with a gun, uh, which might in many ways go against the idea for criminal uh, justice reform. What do you say? You know, I think that anyone who supports criminal justice reform does believe in locking people up who commit violent crimes with firearms. I don't know a single mayor in the country who is saying that I don't think somebody who's shooting up a place needs to walk the streets days later. And I think in some ways that's been a distortion of the political argument. When you talk about criminal justice reform, you're trying to make sure that people who are committing small level offenses, marijuana, all types of other things, aren't running into prison for a long time. But people who are shooting people, who are killing people, who are harming them are a very real problem. And I think you can have reform, but also responsible approaches to how you do it. That means that people who commit violent acts in Kansas City or any city should be in prison, should serve real sentences. All right. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas, thank you so much. Hope you'll come back sometime. Good to have you. The new COVID variant that is highly infectious, even if you have already recently had COVID. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, they've survived everything Mother Nature has thrown at them for thousands of years. But now wildfires in Yosemite National Park are threatening some of the largest trees on the continent. Plus, we're now learning how the suspect in the assassination of the former Japanese prime minister learned to build the homemade gun he used in the deadly attack. And leading this hour, the summer of discontent. Discontent with President Joe Biden. A Rose Garden event to celebrate the president's bipartisan gun safety legislation interrupted by one of the guests. Today's many things is proof that despite the naysayers, we can make meaningful progress on dealing with gun violence. Because make no mistake, sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. If you think you... Let him talk. Let him talk. No one. Okay. Because make no mistake about it. This legislation is real progress, but more has to be done. That man was Manuel Oliver. Manuel's son, Joaquin, was killed in the Parkland, Florida high school shooting in 2018. Oliver says the gun safety legislation does not go nearly far enough. And he criticized the White House for holding an event to, quote, unquote, celebrate anything. Now, Oliver's frustration with President Biden is not an anomaly. It is the norm right now. Most Americans feel that the United States is on the wrong track. And President Biden has historically low approval numbers. Moreover, two thirds of Democratic primary voters in a brand new poll out today say 
they do not want Biden to be their nominee in 2024. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, this comes as crushing new poll numbers paint a very grim picture for President Biden and the Democrats in 2022 and beyond. In the aftermath of another mass shooting, President Biden spotlighting the new safety law meant to reduce gun violence. Lives will be saved today and tomorrow because of this. But for some of the victims' families at the White House today, there wasn't much to celebrate as they called on the president to do more. Make no mistake. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. Let him talk. Let him talk. Biden acknowledging the limits of the most significant gun legislation in three decades, just a week after a gunman killed seven people in Highland Park. This legislation is real progress, but more has to be done. That's where those families in Highland Park, where on July 4th, a parade became a killing field. The White House being urged to do more on guns as Democrats are also calling for more federal action on abortion rights. Yeah, there's more that needs to be done. Uh, and I know the president knows that. President Biden is facing challenging political headwinds as he's hemorrhaging support in his own party ahead of the midterm elections. Elections matter. A new poll says 64 percent of Democrats want a different candidate in the 2024 presidential race, and only 26 percent believe that Biden should be renominated. Biden is already the oldest president in American history, and 33 percent of Democrats who were surveyed voiced concerns about his age. He intends to run, and if he does, I intend to run with him. <laughs> so there you go. Among all voters, Biden's job approval rating stands at just 33 percent as his aides pushed back on doubt emanating from his own party. There's going to be many polls. They're going to go up or they're going to go down. Uh, this is not the thing that we are solely focused on. Now, Jake Curry talked about polls going up and down. They certainly do. But one concern, of course, is that he is losing a lot of support in his own party. She said that they believed 92 percent of Democrats still stood with President Biden. Jake, that's only when in comparison uh, of a choice between former President Trump and now President Biden. In reality, when as Democrats were asked about how they view the job that he is doing, only 70 percent of Democrats said they approved of the job that he's doing, Jake. Obviously, that's a concern for many reasons for this White House, but certainly because President Biden is expected to play a key role in trying to rally Democrats around um, the, their party come the November when the midterm elections happen. That's, of course, been a big concern for them as they are facing very challenging headwinds then. And it also goes back to how viewers, voters are viewing the economy, Jake, because there is so much pessimism in it. And, of course, that is a number one concern for them, even as the White House has pr- tried to project, project strength in that area, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our panel nationally. Allison, let me start with you. I want to dive more into these poll numbers, poll numbers from the New York Times and Siena College. As Caitlin reported, nearly two-thirds of Democratic primary voters want a different nominee. Two-thirds. If you break it down by age, 94% of Democratic primary voters under the age of 30, 94% say they don't want Biden. That is a stunning number. Yes. Um. I mean, he swept his grandchildren, but other than that, I mean, like, who, uh, I mean, 94% don't want him, who are, dem- again, 94%. Demo- yeah. Democrats uh, under yeah, the age yeah. of 30. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. I think young voters often like to see what's out there. You know, they're new to the democracy. They want to understand different candidates. I personally think, you know, if Joe Biden runs again, great. 
If other people run in the Democratic Party, great. I think that's the test of our democracy is that have an open field. If you can win, win, and then go into the general. If Joe Biden is on the top of the ticket in 2024, I will support him. But I think it's fine if there is a contested primary. So, Ania Malika, the pollsters also asked about a hypothetical election between uh, Trump and Biden. Uh, and, and Biden edges out Trump by just three points, which, which honestly, that's within the margin of error. And given Donald Trump's tried to stage a coup, et cetera, I mean, he should be out polling him <laughs> more than that. So um, notice the other voters, though, 10 percent in this poll, 10 percent say uh, they would vote third party or would they, they would not vote at all. Now let's look at voters under 30. That number jumps to 29 percent. Nearly a third of the young electorate will sit it out. Or, or go third party. What do you think of that? Listen, I mean, this is a five-alarm fire, particularly for Democrats, particularly going into the midterms. If we looked at 2018, we looked at 2020, record youth turnout, uh, and that spelled a good news for Democrats uh, at the ballot. In talking to Democratic pollsters who talk to young voters, there is a lot of uh, lack of engagement uh, and lack of faith in the system and lack of faith in voting. They say, listen... We voted and nothing changed in our lives. And you've seen from this White House a real inability to get around some of the issues young voters care about. Voting rights, for instance, uh, student loans. I think uh, Biden is still deciding a year and a half or so into his term what to do uh, about those student loans. About a promise he made. Exactly, exactly. Listen, Republicans, Republicans have a different problem, which is that this cohort of voters tend to vote uh, Democratic. It's going to be among the most educated uh, cohort we've seen in this country, and they haven't really been able to dial in to young voters in the way that Democrats have. But it's a problem all So, around. Ryan Streeter, when pollsters asked voters why they wanted another nominee, a third of them cited President Biden's age. Here's what a 38-year-old daycare worker in Michigan told the Times, quote, I'm just going to come out and say it. I want younger blood. I am so tired of all old people running our country. I don't want someone knocking on death's door. Now, obviously, this is most relevant for Joe Biden, who's the president. But it's not irrelevant when it comes to Donald Trump. Yeah. It's not irrelevant when it comes to Mitch McConnell, who's 80, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, the age thing is obviously a real factor, but the bigger problem is whether you're in touch with what people are mostly caring about right now, I think. And I, and I think there's been a lot of commentary about how Joe Biden has tacked to the left on, on a number of issues. The flip side of that is being out of touch with issues that heartlanders really care about. And you can see this in both the Republican Party and, and in the Democratic Party right now. But for the last two years, um, if you look at intensity in the polls, uh, the people who talk about what they care about very much compared to a little bit, um, has to do with affordability, it has to do with safety, it has to do with good schools, it has to do with these things. And so being a little bit out of touch early on, and especially out of touch as the inflation numbers came through on some of those issues, I think is what's hurt them. There's time to, there's time to get back on that. Joe Biden knows how to talk about these issues, um, more, probably more than Donald Trump does. And so I think when you're looking at intensity, you see the intensity on these issues where people feel like they've been overlooked. And where the intensity is... Um, highest on kind of the far right of the Republican coalition and the farther left part of the Democratic coalition. It's on these issues that the heartland, the ideological heartland, as I call it, of the country doesn't care as much about. Yeah, and let's talk about that because Laura Barron-Lopez, another interesting note in the poll, 76% of voters said the economy is extremely important to their vote this November. That's just what Ryan was talking about, just affordability. Only 10% rated the current economic conditions as excellent or good, uh, even though there are arguments to be made about employment uh, being great and, and, and on and on. Do you think the Biden White House gets this? I think they get it. The issue is what tools they have to fix it, which is that 
again, there's only so much the president can do with executive actions, which is the vast majority of what Democrats, what his own party is pushing him on right now. The other part is trying to pass the rest of his economic agenda, which is not going, is still not going anywhere in Congress. There was some movement among Democrats in recent weeks, but a key part of that could potentially address some of those pocketbook issues that voters, even the Democratic base, are worried about, which is also inflation potentially across health care costs. You know, the fact that ACA subsidies are about to about to expire and then tackling prescription drug costs, which was a huge thing that the White House, you know, championed and talked about a lot last summer, promised that they would tackle it. That is a big element that even Senator Joe Manchin appears to support. If they could potentially pass that before November, that could be another way, you know, an opening for them with voters to show that they are tackling inflation and issues that address, you know, what they're what they're spending on on a daily basis. Do you think I think you're the youngest person at this table, maybe you, uh, uh, but one of you two. Well, I'll ask both of you then. Do you think the age of all of these leaders, especially Biden and Trump, but also Pelosi, also McConnell, et cetera, et cetera, do you think this is one of the reasons, as Neil Malika was suggesting, that young people are just washing their hands of all of this? Yes, I was talking to Gen Zers last fall in Georgia uh, who were saying that, you know, the first words out of their mouth were student loan debt and wanting, some, wanting something on that. They still were in Biden's corner, but they said he hasn't delivered on, on that at all. Uh, they said that they don't see him anywhere. That, you know, younger generations get their news from different sources. They say that they get it from YouTube. Uh, you know, and so if it isn't, if they don't see those videos of the president or the vice president out there regularly, then they're not, they don't know that the president has either spoken on student loan debt, has forcefully, you know, condemned the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. They aren't seeing that. And so I think part of that is also a White House that is trying to push out, you know, media that they think is accustomed to the president, that what what President Biden is used to. What do you think? I mean, I'm an older millennial, and the first words out of my mouth are student loan debt. I would love to see that promise delivered. I also think people my age and younger, we have gone through 9-11, we have gone through a recession, we feel like we haven't gotten a break, and it's not asking for sympathy, it's just asking for our elected officials to fight for us. And I think young people are saying, who's going to really throw down for me? And when I say, even though it was a decade ago, we said 15 um, for minimum wage, who's actually going to fight to get that done? Who's going to make sure I have affordable child care? Um, you know, and so we, it feels the frustration is because of the gridlock. And they're saying, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. If you aren't going to get the things done that are going to make my life better, you have to go. And I just want to put this up just in, in fairness and, and also just to be a, a devil's advocate. He, in late 1994, after Democrats lost control uh, of Congress in the midterm elections, here's a, a headline-grabbing poll found that 66% of Democrats said they'd like to see other challenges, other candidates challenge President Bill Clinton for the nomination. It's obviously a little different, uh, but th- there is something about discontent and also Democrats are kind of fickle. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, you even heard uh, around you know Obama's reelection uh, talk about uh, a primary chance. I, I think Biden's problem is his main reason for energizing voters and having this massive voter turnout was that he wasn't Donald Trump, right? Uh, that was essentially his mandate. He's still not Donald Trump, uh, but people are saying, okay, what is he going to deliver on? There's no sort of real cohort of people like Obama had, right? African-Americans, young voters, Latino voters, uh, to a certain extent. Biden doesn't really have that. 
Uh, and, and so this is why he's struggling. It's also, you know, the idea that polls go up and down, I'm not really sure they do. I mean, they certainly go down. We'll see if he's able to bend the curve. Ryan, very quickly, I've heard Republicans say that they're concerned that Donald Trump is the only Republican that Joe Biden can beat. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Um, well, I think that uh, Joe Biden could, if he gets some of these problems fixed, could, could, could beat other candidates as well. Um, I think really it has to do with which side can address these concerns that we're talking about that both sides seem to neglect. I mean, the noisiest parts of both parties, the ones that have the most influence on the people that we're talking about, are the ones who are concerned about these views that are more extreme than where about two-thirds, 62 to 66 percent of most Americans are. Great. Great panel. Thanks so much for being here. New questions about a church with indirect ties to the suspect in the assassination of the former Japanese prime minister. Then terrifying moments as part of a plane catches on fire during landing. What happened? Stay with us. In our worldly, following former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's shocking assassination, we are now finding out new details about the possible motive. Japanese news media is reporting that the suspect targeted Abe because of a complicated connection. The assassin thought the former Prime Minister's grandfather had expanded a religious group that the shooter held a grudge against. The suspect told investigators, quote, I thought that former Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi, that's Abi's grandfather, contributed to the expansion of the group, and I thought about killing his grandson, former Prime Minister Abi. So it is, what is the group? Well, the Unification Church has confirmed that the shooter's mom was a member. That's a church that has been embroiled in various scandals over the years. CNN has not confirmed that yet with the mother, and we have not been able to independently confirm reports that it was the group that led him, the shooter, to kill Abi. CNN's Matthew Chance reports now from Nara, Japan, on the latest in the investigation into the assassination that stunned the world. In stunned silence, they came to lay flowers and pay their last respects. The people of Japan are reeling at the killing of Shinzo Abe. Their most prominent politician gunned down in a country where gun crime is virtually unheard of. Uh, I think he's the greatest prime minister, the greatest prime minister in the Japanese political history. I'm so, I'm so shocked. Shocked. A lot of people, a lot of people shocked. Yeah, of course I'm scared and angry. But um, the biggest, my impression is like, unbelievable thing happened in Japan. Just I, disbelief. Yeah, I can't believe this is happening in Japan. This is the moment Shinzo Abe was attacked, addressing a campaign rally here in the Japanese city of Nara. The first shot seems to miss. It's the second that proves fatal and causes panic. <laughs> So this is where Shinzo Abe was standing? Yes. Yes. Eyewitnesses like this local newspaper reporter told me he watched the former prime minister motionless and bleeding amid desperate attempts to revive him. Now this has happened once, he says. We all know it could happen again. Well, everyone here is talking about how utterly shocked they are that anyone, let alone a prominent figure like Shinzo Abe, 
could be gunned down so easily in the streets. Unlike in the United States, guns and gun crime here in Japan are incredibly rare. What police say motivated the alleged assassin in this killing, over here, remember, that's where the killing took place, is a deep hatred of what they say was a certain group to which the killer believed Shinzo Abe was linked. Can we just have a look at the damage? Just very quickly, please. Japanese police are still refusing to name that group. But we were turned back from a building where officers told us the suspect may have test-fired his makeshift gun. A blue tarp covers the damage, and a sign reveals a South Korean group, the Unification Church, has premises there. The church denies Abby had any formal links, but says the mother of his suspected killer is an active member, although CNN has been unable to confirm that. Police tell CNN the arrested suspect is being cooperative, but has expressed no regret for his actions. While stunned neighbours in his apartment block told us he always seemed a bit quiet and a bit weird. He looked miserable, Tamako says. When I said hello to him, he never even responded or bowed. He seemed to be in his own little world, she says. A world that for Japan is now forever changed. Well, Jake, the evidence pointing to the, um, the motive of hatred for this unification church seems to be growing. It's not just the grandfather of Shinzo Abe that was linked to it. It's also Shinzo Abe himself. Just last year, he appeared in a video supportive of the group's aims, uh, of course, uh, as well as Donald Trump, who, who did uh, something similar. And local media here is reporting that the suspected assassin of Shinzo Abe watched those videos very carefully indeed before he acted. Jake. Matthew Chance in Japan, thank you for that reporting. He tried to talk his way out, but just because Trump advisor Steve Bannon is now willing to talk to the January 6th committee does not mean he's off the hook for his criminal trial. That's next. In our politics lead a blow to Steve Bannon's defense, a judge ruling this afternoon what former Trump advisor Steve Bannon can and cannot argue in his trial slated for next week. Bannon is facing criminal contempt of Congress charges for defying a subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee. CNN's Jessica Schneider is outside the D.C. District Courthouse. And Jessica, tell us about the judge. He issued several rulings on Bannon today. Yeah, you know, Jake, this federal judge, a Trump appointee nonetheless, he really issued a cascade of rulings against Steve Bannon. First off, he denied Bannon's request to delay this, uh, to delay the criminal trial. It will go forward as planned on Monday, July 18th. And the judge here really limiting uh, what Bannon can present at trial. The judge here saying that Bannon cannot point to claims of executive privilege or the advice of his attorney for reasons that he defied that uh, subpoena from the January 6th committee. Instead, Bannon will really be limited in what he can present, really limited to the fact that he can only say that maybe he just believed the deadline of this subpoena was somehow negotiable. So this is all a very big win for the government, all of the points that the judge ruled on. And the defense now, the options for Steve Bannon really whittled down. In fact, so much so that Bannon's attorney, David Schoen, exclaimed after the judge made all these rulings, he said, 
what's the point of going to trial here if there are no defenses? So a lot of work for this defense team for Steve Bannon just one week until this trial. Jake, Steve Bannon actually wasn't in court today. There's another pretrial hearing that will be on Thursday, but presumably Steve Bannon will be in court Monday when his criminal trial begins. Uh, Jessica, Steve Bannon, he told the January 6th committee over the weekend that he now would be willing to testify, although he wants to do it publicly and and live. Uh, How's that playing out there? Yeah, this is really playing out on two fronts. So here, first of all, in the, at the courthouse and in the courtroom, the judge here, Carl Nichols, has said he's going to wait to rule on any admissibility of Bannon's new offer to testify. So that remains to be seen if the jury's going to get a glimpse of this. But the prosecution is saying don't admit it because it's irrelevant. They say that Steve Bannon broke the law back in October when he didn't comply with that subpoena. And anything he's doing now to try to fix it just doesn't matter. Then on the other front, as for the committee, they really haven't issued anything publicly as it pertains to Bannon's offer to testify. But we did hear from committee member Zoe Lofgren over the weekend. She said that any um, any any offer of testimony, it wouldn't be immediate, even though Bannon has offered to testify in public. Presumably, if they were to take him up on that, it would first be behind closed doors with some sort of deposition. James. All right, Jessica Schneider outside the D.C. District Court. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, the January 6th Select House Committee will hold its next public hearing. It is expected to focus on the connections between the Trump team and domestic extremist groups such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. This comes just days after former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, met with the committee behind closed doors. CNN's Evan Perez has been tracking the developments ahead of the hearing. Evan, what, what are we expecting to learn tomorrow? Well, Jake, uh, we're looking to see uh, for this committee to, 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 to illustrate what they've been talking about, about these, com- these connections uh, between these extremist groups, the, the groups that we know were at the forefront of the invasion of the attack on the, on the U.S. Capitol. Those are the Oath Keepers of, uh, and the Proud Boys. Now, groups of those, uh, members of those, both those groups are facing federal criminal charges. Uh, and uh, according to the, the committee, uh, we got a, a little bit of a preview of what they're about to, uh, what the, we expect them to say. Uh, they are going to present uh, what they say is, is, is evidence of those connections. Now, we know that uh, some members of those groups uh, were providing security for some members uh, that they called a VIP group. We know that uh, Roger Stone and Mike Flynn, was in, they were in contact with members of those groups. And we also know that one of the people we're going to hear from tomorrow, uh, Jake, is uh, a former spokesman for the Oath Keepers. We can expect that this committee is going to show you how the violence is connected to all the things that the former president was trying to pull off before January 6th, Jake. So uh, Zoe Lofgren, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who's on the committee, uh, told me that we're going to likely hear excerpts from the testimony of uh, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone tomorrow. Um, how much weight do you think his, his testimony holds? A lot of weight. Um, Look, even people who were uh, loyal to the former president, people around the former president, believe that Cipollone played a huge role in trying to put some guardrails around the former president, that uh, if it wasn't for Pat Cipollone and and Pat Philbin, uh, his deputy, that things could have gone even worse. We know uh, there's been testimony, Jake, uh, from some other witnesses that uh, Cipollone warned some of them uh, some of the people around the former president that what they what they were trying to do proposed proposing to do to try to over you know their efforts to overturn the election were not legal. We know that he was in the room uh, while the former president was trying to essentially uh, stage a coup at the Justice Department to get them 
to support his, uh, his lies about uh, the election in Georgia and in other states. So uh, Cipollone, uh, we know, testified behind closed doors, but we expect that at least some clips of that are going to be made, uh, we're going to be part of hearings perhaps as soon as tomorrow uh, when this committee uh, meets next. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. CNN's Harry Enten joins us now live from the Magic Wall with a look at how the American people feel about the January 6th hearings. Uh, Harry, so are voters paying attention to these hearings and, and what are you finding there? Yeah, so, you know, look here, following the January 6th hearings, very or somewhat closely. What do we see? We see overall, the majority of Americans are in fact following these hearings very or at least somewhat closely. And here's a more interesting little nugget here. While Democrats are more likely to be following the hearings closely than Republicans, in fact, the majority of Republicans at 51% say that they are in fact following the hearings very or somewhat closely. But here's the big question. Is it really changing anybody's mind? And I think we can get a good idea of it from this question from Quinnipiac. Did Trump commit a crime to change the 2020 election results? And we can compare April of 2022 versus now. Overall, in April of 2022, it was 46%. Now, it's that same 46%. Among Democrats, we see that it's actually dropped two points, although within the margin of error, 87% back in April of 2022 and 85% now. Among Republicans, there's been perhaps a slight upward movement to 15%. But still, clearly, the vast majority of Republicans do not, in fact, believe that Trump committed a crime. And these hearings don't seem so far to, in fact, change opinions across all Americans of whether Trump committed a crime to change the 2020 election results. Uh, and Harry, we've talked before about the poor polling for Democrats heading into this year's midterm elections. Have these hearings changed that outlook at all? Not really. No. Uh, I, I mean, look. Uh, Before the hearings began, you know, they began on June 9th, on June 8th, my average of the polls, the generic ballot had Republicans plus three points. Now, where is it? Republicans plus two points. You could make the argument that maybe there was a slight change, but the fact is there's so much news going on. This is not much of a change at all. And I think there's a pretty good reason why. Because what is the top issue for Americans at this point? And who is trusted on that? The top issue for Americans at this point is not the January 6th committee hearings. It is not Donald Trump. It's inflation, according to 33% of Americans. That is the top issue. And who is trusted more on the issue of inflation? The margin right here is absolutely huge. Republicans are trusted over Democrats by 19 points. And that is why, at this particular point, Republicans still lead on that generic congressional ballot. So Congresswoman Liz Cheney is the vice chair of the January 6th committee. She's facing a tough re-election battle in her Republican primary for Wyoming's congressional seat. Um, Donald Trump and others, uh, including Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, supporting her opponent. What are Cheney's chances looking like of holding on to her seat in, in that primary? Yeah, so I think there's a real national versus Wyoming schism that's going on. So if you look, you know, nationally and you say, okay, do you approve of Liz Cheney's job as chair of the January 6th Select Committee, you can see that slightly more approve than disapprove. But look among Democrats. It's 77% approve to 7% disapprove. Among Republicans, the vast majority, 61% disapprove, Jake. You know what Wyoming has a ton of? Has a ton of Republicans. 71% of the voters in Wyoming are registered Republicans. And Liz Cheney's disapproval rating before voting to impeach Donald Trump was just 26%. Look where it is now, Jake. It is 72%. That is the highest disapproval rating of any member of Congress, according to the 2021 CES 
her chances of re-election looking quite down at this particular point. Well, that's interesting. So the American people care most about the economy, except for these Republicans who care quite a bit about January 6th, except not in the way that most Americans do. That's exactly right. You cannot cross Donald Trump by voting to impeach him. You know, back in uh, earlier this year, Tom Rice faced a challenge in his primary. He only got 25% of the vote, or a little less than 26, I believe it was. That was the worst performance in any primary for a House member this entire century. Cheney may face the exact same fate. Harry Enson, thanks so much. And a quick programming note, join CNN's Drew Griffin for a new investigation into Steve Bannon and his master plan to reshape the United States government, the Republican Party, and the United States of America. The CNN special report, Steve Bannon, Divided We Fall, will begin at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. Coming up, wildfires are threatening some of the oldest living things in North America. How firefighters are trying to protect trees so large you can drive a car through them. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, at least 2,300 acres have been charred in California's Yosemite National Park as a wildfire that just doubled in 24 hours continue to rip through the protected land. Yosemite is, of course, home to 500 giant sequoias, the Earth's biggest trees. CNN's Nick Watt is close to the blaze for us as firefighters battle to save these giant wonders. More than 500 firefighters on the ground battling to save 500 ancient trees. Today, setting controlled backfires, destroying brush and dead wood that would be fuel for the flames. Also, support from the air. A sprinkler system is now in place to protect Grizzly Giant, more than 200 feet tall, more than 2,000 years old. We're trying to give it some preventative first aid, really, and, and make sure that uh, when the fire, if the fire comes over here, that this tree is protected. These ancient trees are designed to survive fires. They've survived many in their time, but officials are fretting over the intensity of these blazes we're now seeing in the Sierra Nevada. Extreme drought and high temperatures are creating dry, flammable fuel. This blaze more than doubled in size in just 24 hours over the weekend. Right now, the fire's within, you know, about a, a, you know, between a mile or two. The historic Wawona Hotel and the surrounding community now evacuated. The south entrance to the park is closed. Kind of heartbreaking. You feel afraid for the people in the town. Just heartbroken about the trees. There is cautious optimism in this fight. Over the last few years, fire teams cleared the brush and fuel around Mariposa Grove. That helps. So does the damage left behind by previous fires, so-called burn scars that will hopefully slow the spread of this one and help save these trees that were here maybe a couple of thousand years before Columbus ever set foot in the Americas. So these trees are basically designed to withstand fire. In fact, they need fire to pop their seed cones. But as our climate warms, the concern is they will not be able to withstand the more intense fires that we're seeing. Good news right now. About an hour ago, we heard the fire is now 25 percent contained. But I've got to say, in the past five or 10 minutes, we have watched that plume grow massively. Either way, we think, we hope that for now, at least, these majestic sequoias will be safe, at least from this fire. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in California's Yosemite National Park. Thank you so much. Coming up, it looks like a massive pool party, but this is the presidential palace 
And those are dozens of protesters fed up. Stay with us. In our national lead, a frightening, terrifying landing for passengers aboard a Spirit Airlines flight when part of the plane burst into flames. Black smoke could be seen billowing from the belly of the aircraft as a fire consumed one of the tires on Sunday morning. Video from inside the plane shows panicked passengers as flight attendants attempted to keep everyone calm. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now live with more on this. Pete, what happened here and were there any injuries? Nobody hurt. Maybe only Spirit's pride as it's on the threshold of this major merger. Spirit Airlines says flight 283, the brakes caught fire not long after it landed in Atlanta yesterday morning. The brakes on a commercial airliner like this are really critical. They take a beating day to day. They go through really brutal tests before an Airbus like this can take passengers. Sometimes the brakes get so hot, the friction builds up to such an intensity that the brakes can glow red hot and in really rare instances catch fire. Now, we know that airport fire crews are trained to deal with incidents like this, and Spirit is thanking those fire crews for coming in to this quick rescue. But passengers say they were pretty spooked by this. You can see uh, as they were in their seats, as the flight crew told them to remain in their seats and to not evacuate. Now, brake fires like this are really, really uncommon. I actually looked this up on the FAA database of incident reports that flight crews submit to the federal government, and they said that this only happened about three times in the last year. Passengers say they're thinking twice about flying again, but this plane was towed back and it will be put back into service after some maintenance, Spirit says. Jake. All right. Piemontine, thanks so much. Turning to our world lead, tens of thousands of protesters infiltrated the Sri Lankan president's house over the weekend, furious with the government's handling of that country's failing economy. Rioters laid in the president's bed. They used his workout equipment. They played his piano. They jumped into his pool. They even set up their own barbecue pits. Later on, protesters burned down the prime minister's house. Both the Sri Lankan president and prime minister have resigned and fled their homes. CNN's Will Ripley is following the upheaval. Will, what exactly are the protesters demanding? Well, President Rajapaska, uh, who fled his uh, residence and is now being held in a secure naval vessel uh, for his safety, uh, he is essentially, after being elected in 2019, he has gone in the deep end, no pun intended, because protesters swimming in his pool aren't doing it because they wanted to have a good time. These people are angry. They're angry because the, the country is more than $50 billion in debt. And as a result, they don't have money to pay their creditors, so they can't get things that people need, like food fuel, medicine. Uh, People can't even get money from their own banks. And so you had 100,000 plus people just outside the president's house alone in Colombo. You had another huge crowd outside the prime minister's house. They set the prime minister's place on fire and they're still occupying the president's residence right now. They say they're not going to leave. They're not going to stop playing the piano, using the gym, swimming in the pool, living the high life that the president's living while ordinary people are suffering until he's officially out. That's supposed to happen. That resignation on Wednesday, Jake. All right. Well, who is going to be uh, the next president of Sri Lanka? Well, whoever it is, they're going to be selected from within the existing ranks of parliament. And that's going to be really tricky to uh, for parliament to choose somebody next week on the 20th uh, who is 
credible and legitimate in the eyes of both the lawmakers and also the public. And, you know, because whoever it is, frankly, has a huge mess on their hands to try to clean up, not just the immediate situation with the protests, but these bigger issues that Sri Lanka is facing. And so we are certainly not out of the woods yet in terms of what could happen on the streets of Sri Lanka, because the crowds are very much uh, revved up and ready to continue uh, to show their displeasure if this new government doesn't help turn their living standards around pretty quickly. And that's a tall order, Jake. All right. Well, Ripley, thanks so much. Coming up next. What the origins of the universe look like, NASA about to make a big reveal. Stay with us. Tonight's out of this world lead is way out there, farther away than anyone on Earth has ever seen, thanks to NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope. The images are set to be released literally at any moment now. At the White House, no less. Let's go right to CNN's Rachel Crane. Rachel, what are you expecting to see? Well, Jake, any moment now, the first image from James Webb Telescope will be revealed uh, at the White House with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and, of course, President Joe Biden. Now, I just want to remind our viewers, this is three decades in the making. This telescope cost $10 billion. The data that is making up these images is being beamed from a million miles away. So this was a really audacious space project uh, that they took on three decades ago to create this telescope. And it's the largest telescope ever created, Jake. And it's not just a telescope. This is really more of a time machine. I mean, this thing is going to allow us to see back to just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, I know a few hundred million years sounds like a really long time, but that's really the equivalent of the universe just turning its lights on. So we're going to be able to see, you know, the formation of galaxies, the formation of stars using this telescope. Uh, Now, we know that today the first image is going to be revealed in just a matter of moments. Tomorrow, there'll be uh, more image re- images revealed. Uh, NASA saying that they're revealing five uh, objects in the sky uh, via these images. Now, I want to point out that in this group, there's going to be a photo of an exoplanet, but not just a photo of an exoplanet. We're actually going to be able to see if there's an atmosphere and what that atmosphere is comprised of. We're also going to have images of nebula. Now, those are stellar nurseries, so to speak. We're also going to see distant galaxies. And we're also, Jake, going to see the deepest view into our universe we have ever seen. And this is just the beginning. James Webb is going to be up there for 20 years doing incredible science. We know what we learned from Hubble. I mean, Hubble taught us that our universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. It taught us that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in our universe where we thought that there was just a fraction of that before. So scientists, you know, they are most excited about the discoveries that they can't even imagine. They are excited to be surprised, Jake. And it's not just the scientists. It's Myself, space enthusiasts all around the world, and I know you too are a bit of a space enthusiast, so I'm sure you're just excited as the rest of us to see these images, Jake. I am. I'm a little impatient, to be (laughs) honest with you. Let's pick it up, NASA. Rachel Crane, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcast, all two hours, just sitting right there. I'll be back tomorrow for CNN's special coverage of the January 6th hearing. Join me and Anderson Cooper starting at 11 a.m. Eastern. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.